In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have some heavy topics. We'll start off by covering coronavirus. We will continue by discussing a bit of uh, about Michael Flynn and the Department of Justice attempting to uh, drop the, the case against him. And then we'll finish up by discussing um, Ahmaud Arbery. And so it's going to be a bit of a heavy one, but uh, we'll try to keep it as light as possible um, during the segments where that's appropriate. Yeah, so, and definitely not during the segments in which it's not appropriate. Although sometimes I do think we stretch the bounds of appropriateness when we talk about COVID-19, but I feel like in this situation, I think people still need a little bit to laugh at because everything's just so terrible right now. I mean, yeah, it, we, we, it was literally the name of our title. Uh, of our episode a couple of weeks ago we laugh so we don't die it's just uh <laughs> you can't <laughs> yeah if we don't if we don't find some way to make it through we're not going to make it through <laughs> yep yep we're all in this together so let's try to laugh our uh way out of it um while still recognizing all of the lives that are being touched and destroyed by yeah. this uh by this Seriously. pandemic i i already i already am seeing more and more people um, who, uh, who I care about, who are losing very close family members. Um, yep. and it is, it is extremely unfortunate and, and it does need to be discussed. Um, but we can still discuss it in a way that breeds nuance, you know? Definitely. I mean, yeah, I'm seeing it starting to touch. So I grew up, Nathan and I both grew up in more rural Virginia, so it's been, not as affected as some more urban areas. And even even so, I'm um, starting to see people that I know with very close friends, um, one of whom died, or a couple of whom are sick. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a strange aspect of human nature that numbers um, aren't that appealing, no matter how yeah. drastic. Like, they just, it's hard to contextualize them. But when it starts to be real people and real stories. That's when it makes sense to our brains. Well, you know? well, that's part of why anecdotal evidence is so effective. I mean, one of the mm -hmm. things that I teach my students about persuasion is tell stories. Now, I do tell yeah. them that so you don't violate the anecdotal fallacy, always follow stories with those statistics so people know exactly how often this is happening. But stories yeah. are powerful. Because yeah. we can't relate to numbers, but we can relate to people. Yeah, numbers tell people why they should care, but stories actually make them care. Yeah, exactly. So speaking yeah. of numbers, what are the numbers right now for uh, for COVID-19 as of today, which is Tuesday, May 12th? Yes. So right now we've got 4.3 million cases worldwide. That's about 700,000 more than last week, which means that the cases spread actually sped up last week. Mm. Um, so the, the week before it was like a 500,000 case increase. So this is like 200,000 faster spread than that. Um, 
So worldwide, there are 292,000 deaths and 1.6 million recovered. Um, and in the United States, we have had 1.4 million cases, so about 200,000 more than last week. So really, it's been like the same pace for the last three weeks. Um, and about 83,000 deaths is the total right now. Um, which means that congratulations to COVID, it's now tied with diabetes as the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. And that's if death stopped right now. Yeah. It would be it would be the seventh leading cause. And on, on top of that, um that's a thirteen thousand death increase from last week, which is pretty much a similar increase in death rate. So when you hear people talking about the curve flattening it's not obviously reflected in the numbers, at least not on the scale that shows up after a couple decimal places. Yeah. Also, one thing that I've been seeing a lot of is people are still looking at the number and assuming that that's the number. So you said that it's approximately 80,000 at this point, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah 83,000. 83,000. So people are looking, people keep looking at the number as if it's stagnant. And then they say, yeah. oh, well, it's only 83,000. And there were some projections that it could be like several million or that it could be 100,000 or 200,000. So like, I guess the projections were wrong. We're not done yet. Like, Seriously. It is not over yet. We don't, yeah. the projections aren't necessarily wrong because- we're not out of it. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's we have 13,000 more deaths this week than we did last week when we spoke to you. That's like, that's just under 2,000 deaths a day. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's rapidly becoming a leading cause of death in the United States. And the United States is rapidly becoming one of the worst affected nations um, by this disease. And yet, at the same time, 31 states have either eased or will start to ease restrictions on social distancing. The only thing that's kept this from getting way, way worse in the near future. So, so those um, loosening of restrictions are, will range from like opening up parks to opening up businesses. In Georgia, you're able to get a tattoo and a haircut Probably not in the same place because beauticians are governed more strictly than, you know, <laughs> the ability to spread a deadly disease. And, you know, we just we just read the statistics. It's not really flattening very much. And in a lot of these states, it's still on the rise. They're still having increasing case numbers. Yeah. It's like if you were in a boat in a storm and you saw land way, 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 way off. So you stopped rowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah or you you jump out a plane you pull your parachute it stops you from falling and you think huh well i guess i don't need this parachute anymore i've already slowed yeah. down <laughs> <laughs> exactly one other point that i wanted to make was there are a lot of people that are having very real criticisms of the way the government has been handling COVID-19. There are a lot of people that have been unable to work and therefore unable to make money during this time. Uh, there is this one case where there was this, uh, there's this woman who uh, ran a hair salon who uh, was sent to jail because she refused to, um, uh, she, she refused to stop going to work. And uh, before her sentencing, she basically said like, I need to feed my children. And, mm -hmm. and that's, 
entirely understandable. And, and I, I don't think she should have been jailed for that. But, um, but that's entirely understandable because people are facing economic woes. And that puts a lot of people into an impossible situation in which they either can't make any money or they're going to put themselves at risk and other people at risk by trying to work. So yeah. what we need to be talking about in that context is not necessarily that the government is overreaching by saying that, um, uh, by saying that you have to stay home. We need to talk about how there needs to be more of a safety net in place to prevent the need for that. We need yeah. a UBI, which has been <clears throat> proposed in the Senate by uh, Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders, and I believe also Ed Markey, or Murky, I, I never knew how to pronounce his name. Um, and that is... It's one of the old white guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, that is super necessary at this point. Uh, we need to make sure that unemployment is expanded. Um, mm -hmm. and, and at this point, the government just does not seem interested in that. In fact, just recently... Donald Trump was talking about the need for more tax cuts. In fact, he was talking about capital gains tax, which, by the way, is already not a progressive tax rate. It's a flat tax rate, which is why people like Mitt Romney and, and Warren Buffett pay less than their secretary because it's a, just a flat rate. He was talking about lowering it or maybe even just getting rid of it. Seriously? Also, let's, talk about, let's talk about what capital gains tax is. It's like it's a tax on the increase in value of stocks when you sell them at a profit. Yeah. The stock market, while not down as nearly as much as it should be, is down significantly from its peak. If your stock manager has been able to eke out a profit during this, one, well done. But two, like, no one is going to be trying to sell their stocks at a gain right now. Yeah. It, it would be very, very unlikely, which indicates that this is an attempt by Trump not to like help people, not to like bail people out from a tax rate that's actually hurting them. It's an attempt to change the tax code to benefit his cronies. Yeah. It's like not only would it not help the middle class and people that really need it, it wouldn't help anybody until after all of this is over. It's already ridiculous that we do not tax capital gains at the same rate as income tax. But he's talking about just getting rid of it. During this time period, during right now, that is not what needs to happen. Because keep, keep in mind, when Republicans talk about cutting taxes, the logical extension of that is always cut entitlements, as mm -hmm. they call them. Uh, cut yeah. Social Security, cut Medicare. Remember, remember, when the original Republican tax cut uh, was proposed, mm -hmm. Paul Ryan promised that it would pay for itself. It didn't. And then... Mitch McConnell, like a year later, was saying, oh, well, uh, I, I guess we need to take a look at uh, uh, the, the Social Security and, uh, and, and Medicare, and uh, we, need to, we need to cut those, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because those are draining the economy, yeah. Or, yeah. How can we afford to support people when we've given all those that money exactly. back to the rich already? <laughs> yeah, and after 10 years, 80% of those tax cuts went to the top 1%. Uh, gotten a little bit off topic but the important point is it is clear who trump is looking out for in this uh in this whole thing yeah. so we really need to have a conversation about ubi at least yeah even if it's a temporary ubi people regular americans 
need money in their pockets. Rich people yeah. do not. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like w- in that regard, we agree with these protesters. Like, yes, yeah. you need to be able to like live and eat and like afford to stay alive. Absolutely. But that shouldn't come at the cost of other people's lives yeah. in the form of a quote like second wave as as restrictions are loosened we'll see an expansion of case count and expansion of death and we've seen that happening already even in places that had a really good handle on you know getting ahead of of the the pandemic um, as they have relaxed restrictions they quickly had to uh, their cases increased and they quickly had to go back into lockdown and walk that back that just happened in germany which it, it had been handling it pretty well. Yeah. But now they have to, to happen in South Korea. Yeah. But now they have to go back and um, go back to the same restrictions because yeah. they started opening too fast. Yeah. One city in Japan was like well ahead of, of the pandemic and doing great. And then they started relaxing restrictions, saw a spike in cases and had to lock down the economy 26 days later. Yeah. So, so, and, and let's also be clear, like, we shouldn't be trying to hasten the second wave, right? Like, one, the second wave is not necessarily inevitable. You know, if we have the proper, like, things in place, it doesn't have to happen. Now, it's likely that it will happen because we'll probably try to open up before we have, like, comprehensive vaccines and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily have to happen. Nor does it necessarily, nor is it necessarily the only increase that happens right it's not like once you get over the second wave you're good to go Mm. it's like there could be a third there could be like there could be as many waves as we as times that we try to reduce restrictions and it's not like it's not like a peak is going to be a golden number that once you hit that how you know you're good to go however it won't go any higher it'll just start to decrease yeah the peak is however high we let it get until literally everyone gets this disease and either dies or recovers, which could be an expected one to two million deaths, which would make this the deadliest thing in the United States by two to four times. Yeah. We cannot let it get there. We can't let it get there. But and it, it might. <laughs> yeah, it might. And, you know... I'm not trying to pin the blame on Trump because, like, he didn't cause the virus, but his lack of leadership and lack of um, direction and proper handling has directly contributed to its spread. And it seems like, you know, he's, well, one, he's just avoiding that, but two, he seems like he's trying to open this economy up anyway. He said, he said last Tuesday, quote, I'm not saying anything is perfect, and yes, Will some people be affected? Yes. Will some people be affected badly? Yes. But we have to get our country open, and we have to get it open soon. So how many badly affected people is he talking about? Is he talking about 100, 1,000? Well, according to an internal report um, uh, leveraged by the White House um, that was created by the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and reported on by the New York Times— they increased their expected death count um, by the start of August to 135,000 deaths due to easing restrictions. So he's talking about not hundreds of deaths. He's talking about thousands of deaths due to easing restrictions, but it's all worth it 
if we can get the economy open and not have to, you know, pay out any more money to the poor. Yeah. One thing that I want to reiterate that we, we, a point that we've made in podcasts before is that never have I cheered for the president to succeed more than I have right now. Yeah. And look, I hate the president. I think I've made that very clear. And even if he was doing a good job, I probably would still hate him, but I'd be cheering him on. Yeah. I'd sure as hell be cheering him on because he's the pilot. He's the one flying the plane. And he's decided, oh, well, if we crash land here and we lose like, you know, another few thousand people, I mean, eh, people would be yeah. affected. That would be bad, but whatever. We got to land the plane, right? And, and the alternative is not, you know, crashing the plane and everybody dies, right? The alternative is like waiting a little bit longer and landing safely with, minim <laughs> with you know, yeah. minimal deaths. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Do the worst thing or the better thing? Hmm. <laughs> the worst thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And apparently it is starting to hit home for him because there are people within the White House who are starting to test positive, which... Well, that would assume that he cares about anybody in the White House. He cares about himself. Melania. <laughs> he cares about himself. Yeah. I mean, there are people enough. around him who are uh, who are being infected by it. And no, no, I himself. drink Diet Coke. It's basically bleach. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that this leads to is some of the attempts by the Trump administration, Trump administration officials, to cover up the fact that they have had an abysmal response. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was doing an interview on ABC's The Week, and he was trying to argue that the virus must have been man-made or genetically modified and that it must have come from a laboratory in China. So he said, quote, Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. I have no reason to believe that at this point. His interviewer responded by saying, Your office of the DNI says that the scientific consensus was that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. To which Mac Pompeo responded by saying, that's right. I agree with that. S yes, I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that that is accurate at this point. So to be clear, in that statement, he started out saying that the experts were telling him that it was man-made. He was called out because they're not saying that. And then he immediately said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not man-made. Yeah, I have no reason to doubt that. So later, he was asked about this weird contradiction. And he said, he gave one of the most Orwellian responses that I've ever seen. <laughs> so he insisted that there was no contradiction between his position and the, the comments made by other senior U.S. officials. What he said was, quote, and this was during a press conference with the State Department on Wednesday. He said, we don't have certainty, and there is significant evidence that this came from the laboratory. Those statements can both be true. I've made them both. Administration officials have made them. They're all true. So the statement <laughs> that it was made in a lab and the statement that it was not made in a lab are both true. Could you imagine living in that brain? Could you imagine like the horrible experience of like, oh God, 
<laughs> I would be daunted by a world where things can both be true and untrue. So everybody remember, this is the Secretary of State. So this guy is fourth in line to be president. <laughs> yeah. Wow. To be fair, we have an orangutan who actually is president. That is, that is a fair point. That is a fair point. Yeah, still still a little bit less crazy than the guy who's actually president. But yeah, but let's seriously. be clear what he's doing here. See, the Trump administration knows that they screwed up, that they supremely shot themselves in the foot throughout mm -hmm. this entire time, that they screwed over the United States, and on every single level, they are an incompetent administration. I mean, from the fact that they started out pretending that it was a hoax to um, to what they're doing right now, where they're trying to reopen it way too fast, to the fact that uh, it's exceeded some projections and it's still continuing to rise. They know that they've screwed up. And also consider the fact that the United States, according to the statistics that Michael read earlier, uh, Michael said that there's about uh, 4 million cases uh, worldwide and about uh, and approximately a million cases in the United States. So we're a quarter of all cases in the world while only being 5% of the world's population. That is a national embarrassment. And of course, mm -hmm. of course they want to distract from that because this is an election year and they know that if the conversation becomes about how badly they screwed up, that they're not going to get another term. Yeah, exactly. So what they want to do is they want to distract you away from their abysmal job and try to make it seem like, oh, well, it's not our fault. It's China's fault. Yeah. This is nothing less than scapegoating. Absolutely. And and if you think about that in conjunction with the reopening push, it makes what could potentially be an effective and really infuriating electoral strategy yeah. because in focusing on the recovery the economic recovery in focusing on reopening as the economic solution they are trying to make this an economic crisis not a health crisis yeah. they're trying to say china caused a health crisis which we're handling this is an economic crisis and as we all know that is the one trick that the Republicans attempt to use, like this is the one trick pony of the Republican show. It's like they always are trying to say that they are the ones to save the economy. And if they can effectively make the argument that the, the right person to do the job of fixing the economy is going to be Donald Trump, they could actually have a freaking shot at getting out of this. Yeah. Like, especially among Republican leaning and Republican voters that already have confidence in their ability to run an economy and are willing to accept an alternative alternative facts about um, the health crisis narrative. And so I wonder if like I wonder if that is why certain Republican groups, including gun rights activist groups and Republican conservative election groups, are pushing for these reopen protests. Because I wonder if that is why they're trying to focus this on reopening in order to solve the economic problem, to make this purely an economic crisis and less and less a health one. Um, and to circle back on exactly what I'm talking about there, you know, so, you know, we know that 
80% of people currently support the shelter-in-place um, orders despite economic setbacks. And yet, there's this incredibly loud movement of a minority of people protesting to reopen the economy. And so you got to wonder, like, how are these people organizing so effectively and getting so loud? And the truth is that a lot of that organization is coming from um, Republican leadership, some affiliated with um, Trump's reelection effort, and as well as conservative activist groups and pro-gun lobbies. Um, so, you know, in, in some swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and North Carolina, Republican leaders are actually using their social media to try to get protesters um, to get their followers to join these protests. And uh, an analysis of um, new domains focused on like reopening America or reopening these different states found that many of these um, new organization websites that um, focus on organizing these protests to reopen the economy link back to just a few groups and individuals. So many of these actually link, link back to um, st the state's firearm coalition groups. And in turn, these sites can be tracked back to the Doerr brothers, specifically Aaron Doerr, who is a registered lobbyist in Iowa. And he runs a bunch of different pro-gun advocacy groups um, across a bunch of different states. And so really, like, a ton of these, this organizing is organized by one pro-gun advocacy network. It's, it's kind of astounding. Which I, I don't really understand what gun rights necessarily have to do with this. I mean, yeah, you, you're thinking, oh, no, 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 we, we don't defeat this virus by staying home. We defeat it with guns. <laughs> well, we talked about it last week. Just <laughs> things that kill people kill viruses. <laughs> well, well, but I think, so I think, you know, this is just hypothesizing. And, and that's the big question to me. Like, I worry about what these groups are after in trying to organize these things. You know, it makes me hesitant because I don't know what their aim is. But, I mean, on the most superficial side, it could be just a good time to show off how like guns they're finally getting their opportunity to do some armed anti-big government protests yeah um you know on a more nuanced perspective this could be uh, you know part of an electoral strategy um like we talked about earlier i'm not sure but it really makes me worried because these groups are been organizing and they are getting outsized representation in the news and starting to shift the conversation to reopening when that would be very dangerous. All right, and now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? We do Tips for Good to bring you a fact or something you can keep in mind that you could enact in the world and make the world a little bit of a better place. So, Nathan, what is our Tip for Good this week? Michael, our Tip for Good this week is... Don't just press share. Hmm. So social media, it's a nice invention. You know, we've been able to have a lot of uh, activist movements go viral. Yeah, zero consequences. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe a few. Um, but we've been able to have a lot of important movements go viral. And we've been able to start a lot of important conversations 
using social media. So I definitely don't want to diminish the role of sharing things on social media. I definitely don't want to do that. But, but if you really want to do something more practical, do something that pushes the envelope a little bit further, you should. There are yeah. lots of other things that you can do as an activist besides just hitting share on Facebook. Now, one of the things that I actually do on my own Facebook is I actually rarely just share memes. Um, usually, I actually just write out my own posts. Now, part of that is because I think I kind of have an old-timey view of Facebook. But another part of that is I want to make sure that I'm not just regurgitating the content that somebody else shared, that somebody else put forward. So what I would encourage you to do then is to go beyond that by introducing your own perspective in it. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a long Facebook post. Maybe you go further. Maybe you start your own YouTube channel in which you talk about political issues or start your own podcast. I or mean, a blog. Or blog. Maybe you do something like that. Maybe you push even a little bit further and you start contacting your local representatives and your state representatives and your, uh, your national representatives. Maybe you do that. All of those are things that can inject more into political discourse than just hitting share. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And personally... I've had like the experience that I've had developing this podcast with you, Nathan, Nathan, and, you know, expanding my voice and developing my voice as a political um, thinker has been really beneficial. Mm. I've, I've, I feel like I've grown a tremendous amount. I've learned a tremendous amount, so much more than just reading and sharing. Yeah. Like, so, so if you think about the process of knowledge, process of knowledge acquisition, that's what you do often when you're in like high school, right? You're, you're reading a science textbook, you are memorizing facts. Um, but when you get like further along, you move from knowledge acquisition to information synthesis, right? You're taking information from multiple sources and synthesizing it in, in to new and better ideas. And that's the step that you take when you don't just read the article and fact check it like we recommended last week, but you also take the time to think it through, potentially create something. Even if you never share it with anybody, even if you write something down and never it never leaves your fingertips, developing your voice, writing that down, helps you synthesize those ideas and makes you a better thinker and a better actor in the world. Yeah, yeah. So don't just think well, I'm listening to this person and they seem to make sense, so I just like what they say. Think, why do I like what they say? Why do I think they're correct? What do I actually feel about it? If I were not using their words, then how would I describe how I feel about this particular political issue? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So don't just share, develop your own voice. And that's Tips for Good. All right, up next, we're going to talk a little bit about Michael Flynn, not to be confused yeah. with Michael Bloom, who is a podcaster and not a criminal. Or Errol Flynn, who is an actor and also not a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> At least as far as I know, I, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure you're not a criminal, Michael. And I'm pretty sure that... No, I am not a criminal. You're not a criminal. No. Yeah. Errol no. Flynn might but, be. But I, I don't actually... Errol Flynn 
was Captain Blood, so technically a pirate. So I guess he's a criminal. <laughs> so last week, the Justice Department attempted to drop the case against Michael Flynn. Let's be clear. Michael Flynn has confessed to the crimes that he's been charged for. And, and um, in dropping the case, the Justice Department said that um, the FBI's investigation was, quote, untethered and, quote, unjustified, um, by which they meant that the lies that Michael Flynn told to the FBI weren't important to the investigation to um, Russia's potential collusion with the White House, and so it doesn't matter. So we're going to walk through all this in a little bit of detail. Um, but throughout this conversation, I encourage you to keep in mind the fact that the Department of Justice is supposed to be an independent um, agency, an independent executive agency tasked with executing law and order in the nation. It, it is the highest organization um, for that purpose. And so independence is absolutely critical, and they are a critical function of justice in our society. And another important point to make about that is that the Department of Justice serves the presidency, not the yes. president. So they serve the executive branch, and the chief executive is the president. But they serve the office, not the person. Yes. Meaning that they're if they not are, Trump's personal lawyer. Yeah, exactly. They're not Trump's personal lawyer. And if they're being treated as if they are Trump's personal lawyer, then we're no longer living in a republic. We're living under cronyism. Yeah, exactly. That would be that's a huge, huge problem. And one that could that is is currently unfolding and resulting from collusion and cronyism. And so so Attorney General William Barr, who heads the Department of Justice, assigned an independent prosecutor to review Flynn's case. Now, independent is a pretty generous term here, but we'll go with it. Um, and the, the independent prosecutor recommended dropping this case. And again, this comes after Flynn pled guilty um, during Mueller's investigation. And remind in me what he was originally charged with. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, this is this is an important part. Um, so he was charged with lying to the FBI um, during an investigation into whether Michael Flynn had inappropriate relationship with, uh, with Russia, including potentially receiving money from them that could lead him to being blackmailed. So the FBI was specifically interested in his relationship with Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. So when he lied to the FBI about conversations with Sergei Kislyak and they charged him with lying to the FBI during an FBI investigation, again, about his relationship with Russia, i.e. Sergei Kislyak, apparently, according to this independent investigator, the relationship just wasn't appropriately subject to their investigation and is somehow untethered and unjustified to the, quote, legitimate investigative basis that the FBI had. So basically they're saying the fact that he lied to the FBI during an investigation that they were conducting into the thing that he lied about was unconnected to the investigation and shouldn't be prosecuted. Yeah. One thing, one other point that I want to make about this real quick is that there are a lot of people that are looking at this 
and saying, well, okay, they're bringing up the Russia investigation again. Well, Trump was exonerated uh, by mm. Bob Mueller in the Russia investigation. So doesn't that mean that everything about Michael Flynn is also, you know, BS? So two important points to that. Number one, he wasn't exonerated. Yeah, exactly. Bob Mueller found insufficient evidence to charge him with collusion. Now, he, was, he left it up in the air as to whether or not there was evidence to charge him with obstruction, which he even kind of basically said, like, hey, um, if you want to pursue that further, then you should do impeachment. But he didn't yeah. find sufficient evidence to show that, the, that Trump personally colluded with Russia. Now, looking at that and then saying, well, then that means that it was all BS— that is committing what is referred to as the composition division fallacy. So the composition division fallacy is assuming that just because one part of something is true, that the rest of it must also be true. So if it's true that he did not, that there was not sufficient evidence that Trump personally included with Russia, that that must also mean that there's nothing to be said, there's nothing to look at, there's nothing to see in the Russia investigation, when that's not entirely true. Michael yeah. Flynn pled guilty to inappropriate relations with Russian officials and to lying about it. Exactly. Which is exactly the thing the FBI was investigating. So, like, it is clearly connected. Um, and the fact that they're trying to argue that it wasn't and that they didn't have any reason to look into this is just really strange. Like, we're literally looking into this exact problem um, and somehow this independent investigator found that it fell outside of um, an, this appropriate vest investigation and that it wasn't conducted with a legitimate investigative basis. And so if you're wondering why this looks so weird, it's because the Department of Justice is trying to get Michael Flynn off the hot seat. So... Why is this a problem? Because we know that Trump has been talking about this case since Flynn first got indicted, and he's been trying to get it dropped ever since. And he's even said that if he was convicted, he would probably just pardon him. So why does it matter? Well, two things. First, it spared Trump from having to make a potentially politically damaging choice of pardoning him. Right? Like, this is not when the president pardons the turkey at Thanksgiving. This is actually important and people care. And so, like, <laughs> if you were to pardon Michael Flynn, like, there would be consequences and there should be. The second thing is maybe a little bit of a more nuanced point. Um, so, so, when someone receives a presidential pardon, they have to actually accept it, it's not just automatic. And according to the Supreme Court opinion in the decision of uh, Burdick versus the United States, the acceptance of a pardon carries the, quote, imputation of guilt. So basically it means that when you accept a pardon, you are accepting guilt for the thing that you are pardoned for. So maybe this is small, but it seems like it's a pretty big difference if Michael Flynn is literally able to get off scot-free because the Department of Justice rigged the system in order to you know, double talk their way out of his literal confession to a crime that he was being investigated for. And that seems pretty different than him having to accept the guilt, even if he doesn't do jail time in either case. But more importantly, 
This problem represents another step in the breakdowns of the norms and values which represent and separate the executive agencies of the presidency from the political ambition and like unfair dealings of the president himself. So, so while Trump has said that he didn't explicitly direct this, we know his position on it. And we know that Attorney General um, William Barr, who is a clear and known Trump supporter and basically an extension of his administration at this point, has in, on multiple occasions tried to um, take action to undermine um, and downplay the Russian investigation, including um, like starting a investigation into the investigation. In addition, when when he summarized Mueller's like hundreds of page report to Congress, he summarized it in a four page letter that basically said, "Nah, there's nothing to see here." And and most clearly, and and like in such an obvious example, yet another obvious example of like inner dealing and trying to execute against Trump's interests. Um, he overruled prosecutors in the Roger Stone case. Um, so, so the prosecutors in that case recommended a seven to nine year sentence for Stone, who was convicted of witness tampering, lying to Congress, and obstructing a House investigation. So we're talking serious federal crimes. And uh, he went back and overruled their sentencing recommendation of seven to nine years, and Stone ended up getting three years. As a result, the entire team of prosecutors on the case quit the case because um, they they just wouldn't be party to it. It's cronyism. It's a really, yeah, it's a really bad sign. Like, like, our justice system is essentially made up of, like, three parts. Like, one is, like, the FBI, who's basically the police. They go out, they find the information, they put together the investigation, and then they hand it off to uh, the lawyers, basically, the Department of Justice is like the DA's office. Uh, I know. They I know. I've, to pursue I've, the I've case. watched. I've watched Law and Order. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Maybe, maybe if William Barr watched Law and Order, he might take his job a little more seriously. <laughs> but ultimately, well, I, like, I don't think I, Michael. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm not sure if he's interested in Law and Order. <laughs> no, but that's exactly the problem. Like, like the the independent judiciary all they do is 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 judge the outcomes of the cases if the um policing part and the um admin, administration of justice part i.e. the DOJ if either of those pieces are corrupted our our justice system is irreparably crippled and that's what we're seeing because Trump wants to get get his friends out of jail to try to keep his slate clean. It's just, it's really depressing. <laughs> so now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is another one of our favorite senators, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Oh, great. I'm so glad that he finally made it on the show. He finally made it on the show. Huge congratulations, Senator Rand Paul. 
So what did this guy do to finally land it on our list? Well, he was in a Senate hearing in which uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was testifying, warning people about the dangers of opening up too early. So Rand Paul had a line of questioning in which he went after Fauci's credentials. So we started out by talking about uh, specifically keeping children out of schools. So we said, quote, if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged children who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And he pointed to a study in Sweden um, that had talked about how kids were a little bit less at risk. So right off the bat, like, it doesn't seem too terribly unreasonable, but it's still kind of like, what the hell, man? So it's okay for a few of the kids to die. And that also assumes that they're not then getting contracted. They're not contracting the disease and then coming back to the parents. But at this point, he hasn't said anything too asshatty. The asshat part is when he says specifically to Fauci, quote, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person who gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying that there's that there's not going to be a surge, that we can safely open the economy. Shares a picture of the other side, and it's some dude in his basement. (laughs) There are people on the other side. First off, that's not how citations work. Second off, yeah, (laughs) of course there are people who are saying, like, in this situation, either it's going to resurge or it's not. So... Here we have an actual expert in Dr. Anthony Fauci saying it is very likely going to resurge, and some mm-hmm. people are projecting that it might not. Now, wouldn't you say that in a case like this, you should probably err on the side of caution? Yeah, I mean, but it's only the kids that die, right? Like, who cares about that? <laughs> yeah, and also, or it's only the kids that contract it at school and share it with their parents who die. Who cares about that? They could not learn for a whole year. And also, we know. We know that loosening restrictions leads to resurgences because we're seeing that right now in Germany. Yeah. We're seeing it in South Korea. Mm-hmm. We know that that happens. So I don't think the facts are the end all, you know? Yeah. So Fauci, there are different opinions out So Fauci there. hit back and he said that um, uh, he doesn't believe that he's the only voice. Um, and that he doesn't give advice on anything other than uh, public health. And he also said, I think we better be careful if we're not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects of COVID-19. So, and one other thing that I want to point out with Paul, which makes this whole thing, this, is, this, this part is the reason why he makes the asshat list this week. This is the guy who tested positive for COVID-19, was asymptomatic, and then got in a Senate swimming pool. (laughs) So if I want to take quarantine advice from the dumbass that decided, hey, I'm carrying a deadly disease. I should get in a swimming pool. I'll be (laughs) sure to ask you, Rand. A nice, cool coronavirus (laughs) soup for everybody to enjoy. (laughs) Yeah. And considering the age... The, the ages of people in the Senate, like, that's a that's a hot spot of people that are susceptible to the virus, man. Yeah, it's basically term limits at this point. <laughs> oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like, 
it's yeah we do not know enough about this disease to know that kids are totally fine like we know that like even if people aren't getting harsh respiratory experiences sometimes people have very strange other symptoms like freaking organ failure and the fact is that we don't know about the impact on children yet but yeah that's okay they're just the next generation let's send them to send them to school yeah and also Let's, you know, let's say it again like we said it before. The best case scenario, the best case scenario is we do too much and we didn't end up needing to do as much as we did. That's the yeah. best case scenario in this. Mm -hmm. So I can't Maybe believe we should it aim took for that. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it took this long for Rand Paul to make the list, but a hearty congratulations to Senator Rand Paul for being our Ass hat of, of the, the week. week. And now it's time for our last segment of the evening. Um, we wanted to do a quick precursor before diving in. Um, so first of all, a bit of a trigger warning. We will be talking about um, the ruthless murder of an individual um, in a fair amount of detail. So if that... Um, if you think that that would trigger you or um, make you experience any any kind of psychological distress, go ahead and uh, tune out now, and um, you know you can listen to us. Hopefully, talk about lighter topics next week. Yeah. Also, one other thing. Uh, so normally, Michael and I try to keep the cussing to a minimum. Um, those restrictions are going to be lifted for this segment because we got sh some shit to talk about. Sometimes there are certain words that one employs when you're fucking tired of innocent black men and women and people being murdered in the streets for nothing. Yeah, exactly. So back in February, a man was shot and killed for no reason. And more than two months later, the people who shot him were finally arrested. And how on earth did it take that long to arrest these people who were just sitting in their homes that everybody knew exactly where they were? Well, that's simple. Ahmad Arbery was black. Yeah. So Ahmad was uh, out for a jog um, in a neighborhood in Georgia on February 23rd in the middle of a sunny afternoon. Um, and two racist assholes... Uh, Gregory and Travis McMichael decided that he looked like someone they thought resembled a person who they thought was a suspect in a string of burglaries in their neighborhood. Never mind the fact that there was no string of burglaries. There was only one gun missing from one unlocked pickup truck that belonged to Travis McMichael. And there was no reason to suspect that um, Arbery had taken this or was involved in any other crime in the neighborhood. Um, and so while he was jogging in their neighborhood, they grabbed a couple of guns, followed him in their pickup truck, and when they tried to stop him um, with their guns drawn and cocked, he tried to run around them. And then when they attempted to force him to stop um, and threatened him with their, their firearms, as far as we can tell, um, he was trying to defend himself from their violent attack, and um, they shot him twice, killing him. And this was all caught 
on video. And both Michael and I have watched the video and it is extremely disturbing. And it is also extremely clear that this man was murdered. And, you know, um, I would say that if watching that video would trigger you, don't watch it. But, um, but you, you can find it online if you do want to, if you do want to see it. Yeah. Um, it was very clear that, uh, when, um, Ahmad went to go grab one of their shotguns that he was defending himself because there were two heavily armed men who were brandishing at him. Yeah. Attempting to stop him like forcibly. Yeah. And he was trying to get a gun out of their hand. And one thing that's absolutely insane that when I read this, I, I almost screamed. So there was this, there was this one prosecutor um, who actually had to recuse himself from the case uh, because he apparently knew the father. Uh, the guy's name was uh, Barnhill. And before he recused himself, apparently, he actually made the argument that the McMichaels were in the right mm-hmm. because they were protecting themselves. He made yeah. the argument that uh, it might have actually been Aubrey's fault because he was trying to pull the shotgun out of Travis McMichael's hand. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Someone is brandishing a shotgun at you, you are unarmed, and you try to get that shotgun out of your hand, and that's you attacking them? No. You know how self-defense works? If someone is brandishing a deadly weapon at you, you have a legal right to kill them. So you know what? If Aubrey had killed them, he would have actually been in the right because he would have been defending himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's what should have happened. Yeah. Because I can't believe that anybody would listen to that bullshit. And to make matters even worse, there's actually a Facebook group that has been created that is dedicated to justice for the McMichaels. And there's like, the last I checked, there was like 50,000 members who were saying, oh, well, these are two God-fearing men who were just, who were just trying to make sure that this person who looked like a suspect in a burglary they were just trying to make sure that they could do a citizen's arrest on him. And he should have just he should have just complied with instructions. Are you kidding me? If people are pointing guns at you, oh yeah, just uh, just comply with them. And if you don't do that, then you're the criminal. And and that's the thing. Like that is the explicitly like racist part of this conversation. It is if two white people tell you to do something, you do it. Yeah. And the assumption is that you're a criminal until proven innocent if you're an African American. Yeah. And, does, and it's does, like does anybody does anybody think that if it were two armed uh black folk who killed a white person 
while they were jogging. Does anybody think that they wouldn't have been arrested immediately? Does anybody yeah. think that? The McMichaels weren't arrested immediately. Like, there was a statement taken from them, and then they were released and not considered a flight risk. And so they just were going about their lives, not even told not to leave town for um, the pending investigation. It was like, it's absolutely ridiculous. And, the, and Barnhill um, recommended to the county police chief that there was, quote, no grounds for arrest. And, and in that letter, he wrote, quote, basically just like taking the, just the story from the McMichael side and with no other facts when he had seen the video, he knew he, he had seen it. At that point, he, he in his letter, he referenced um, the video and William Bryan, who is the one who, had, who, who took the footage. And he said in his letter that the McMichaels were, quote, following in hot pursuit a burglary suspect with solid firsthand probable cause in their neighborhood and asking slash telling him to stop. It appears their intent was to stop and hold the criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. Under Georgia law, this is perfectly legal. And then he went on to say, given the fact that Arbery uh, initiated the fight, at the point Arbery grabbed the shotgun, under Georgia law, McMichael was allowed to use deadly force to protect himself. The what fucking McMichaels the initiated fuck? the fight by having the shotguns brandished at him in the first place. Every piece of this makes no sense. Jesus Christ. One, burglary suspect? He is not a burglary suspect. First-hand probable cause? There was no first-hand probable cause. They had no, like, they, they had no direct witnessing of a crime taking place. There was no crime. He had no evidence of their actual intent to detain him rather than um then murder him yeah and he didn't initiate the fight when someone points a gun at you they are initiating the fight and okay let's assume that let's assume that he was actually the burglar so let's let's like even assume that you know for their for the sake of argument let's assume that this unarmed black man who was jogging let's assume that he was the burglar he was still unarmed Killing yep. him is not justified. You yep. know, if you want to talk about a citizen's arrest, whatever. But you don't get to brandish a gun at him. You don't get to well, brandish a firearm. You, you can you can call the police and, and have them come and do something. But yeah. you don't get to just chase after him and then brandish at him. But, but even that is more generous than the facts could possibly yeah. imply. Because... Um, because those burglaries, if they even existed, which there's no record of, of multiple burglaries existing, and even if Ahmad committed them, they were they were well beforehand. And the the citizens arrest law in Georgia requires that you have to actually be observing or an immediate knowledge of the crime. So it doesn't extend to detaining anyone who you think is a subject of the crime, which makes total sense. Like, if the crime doesn't even have to have been confirmed, as it wasn't, and the person doing the crime can just be anyone you think might look like someone who did an unconfirmed crime, that makes literally anyone open to being detained under that by anyone else in society under the citizen's arrest laws. And then if you can just brandish a firearm at someone and then it's their fault when they defend themselves, that basically means that, like, 
you can just go out murdering people as long as they take a step towards you first. Yeah. And one of the parts that pisses me off the most about this is aspects that are being reported on about um, about Aubrey, which yeah. this this actually came from Barnhill's letter in which he talked about how uh, apparently in high school, Aubrey was uh, indicted for allegedly bringing a gun to school in 2013, and that in 2018 he was arrested on shoplifting charges. Neither of those have anything to do with this situation. Seriously. Nothing. Yeah. So he was unarmed. It doesn't matter whether he uh, had a previous criminal record, or it doesn't matter if he uh, if he committed crimes when he was younger. That doesn't matter. He was unarmed. He was just taking a jog, and he was murdered. Yeah. And but it, this it, is nothing more than an attempt to try to assassinate the character of the victim in order to protect the perpetrators of this murder. Yeah. But And it is the classic pattern that we see in these kinds of, like, un like these 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 murders like you see it in police shooting cases it's like oh well he had to kill him he was selling cds it's like how on earth do you not understand that that in no way justifies lethal use of force or lethal action yeah and and this case like the murder occurred on february 23rd May 7th, finally, agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation arrested the McMichaels, and they are um, facing felony murder and aggravated assault charges, and the next step would be to go to a grand jury investigation. And, God, if they, if they don't get found guilty, this will be a miscarriage of justice. Like, the video is there clear as day. They did it. They yeah. murdered this guy. So... Yep they need to be held accountable for that. There needs to yeah. be justice. And this is why Black Lives Matter exists. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's not forget, a lot of people, when they talk about Black Lives Matter, they're often um, specifically referring to police shootings. And that is important to discuss. But, there are, but in some cases, remember, Black Lives Matter started to gain a lot of traction with the George Zimmerman case with uh, with Trayvon Martin, where a very similar thing happened, where some vigilante decided that a young black man was guilty automatically, and then they felt threatened because apparently in the United States, having dark skin is a weapon. So... This is why we have Black Lives Matter, because when things like this happen, you see character assassinations on the victim. You see uh, you see immediate sympathy towards the perpetrators. And we need to remind people that there is a specific problem in this country. I mean, when it comes to police shootings, one thing that people need to recognize, because one, one of the rebuttals to that that a lot of a lot of people seem to to bring up in order to sort of delegitimize that is well what about black on black crime first off when we're talking about police shootings 
We're talking about the government committing the shooting. We're talking about an authority figure, somebody who we should be relying on to protect us. Someone who actually should, who actually does have a regulatory agency in order to keep them in check. So to compare them to black-on-black -black crime, that's, that's a complete non-sequitur. Number two, it is important to recognize that it is, the numbers are disproportionate. So uh, according to a database compiled by mappingpoliceviolence.org, so in 2009, police killed 1,099 people. Black people made up 24% of those who were killed, despite the fact that black people only make up 13% of the United States population. That is a that is disproportionate. And and then and then some sometimes the, the argument then is, oh well, but black people tend to commit more crimes. So of course they're killed more by police. So one thing that's important to point out with that is that that is a total red herring. So first off, one thing that we know based on statistics is that the cause of crime is not racial. It is often poverty. So according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, people that live in households at or below the federal poverty line have more than doubled the rate of violent victimization as persons with high-income households. And the rates are comparable among uh, poor blacks and poor whites. In fact, it's actually slightly higher among poor whites. So it's uh, 46.4 per 1,000 for whites and 43.4 per 1,000 for blacks. And one, one interesting number just to throw into there, it's actually a lot lower for Hispanics. So like for poor Hispanics, it's uh, 25.3 per 1,000. So I, so that, I thought that was an interesting statistic. So, but keep that in mind. When it comes to the disproportions of, uh, of crime committed by uh, people of color, it is based on poverty. And according to the United States Census data, 2018, 20.8% of black people in the United States live in poverty, compared to 10.1% of white people. So... Mm -hmm. More than double. So even those arguments, the arguments of, oh, well, they commit more crime, even that argument, it still comes back to institutional racism because the reason, one of the major reasons why black people in the United States live in poverty is because of instances like redlining where people have been systematically, black people have systematically been kept in poorer neighborhoods with lower quality schools. And the reason why they have lower quality schools is because schools are paid for with property tax. And if there's a low, prop if there's a low property value, then there's going to be significantly less funding going towards the schools, which means there's going to be significantly lower quality of education. And education is a major driver of social mobility. So because of redlining, black people often 
stay in poverty because of those institutions. Mm -hmm. So it still comes back to institutionalized racism. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's, at a, it's at every level. It's at a societal level. It's enshrined in our laws many times. It, you know, we have an incredibly long history of tailoring laws to try to disadvantage African Americans in the United States. And it, it makes it all the way down to individuals who go out and murder people, to our police stations who, you know, will go out and, you know, use lethal force against an, a black person. And in 96% of cases, they won't be charged with a crime at all. And in 99% of cases, they won't be convicted of anything. And yeah, to Nathan's point, like you might say like, oh, well, you know, if there's more violent crime, they're going to use, you know, more lethal force in general. That's going to be, um, you know, necessary. The police are going to feel unsafe more and they'll use le uh, lethal force more often. Well, if this is true, we'd, we'd expect that um, police killings of black people would be correlated with violent crime. But it's not. So Oklahoma City, which has uh, above average violent crime, has some of the highest rate of police killings in the United States, 20 people per 1 million. Similar stories in Phoenix, in Tulsa, in Kansas City, in Mesa, in Long Beach, Albuquerque, Baltimore, Tucson, what do these cities have in common, man? It's like, they're in the South. Yeah. And one thing that, one other point I want to make about like Black Lives Matter as a whole, there's a huge straw man that is created by the right, which shuts down productive conversation and shuts down the voices of advocates, which basically says that if you are complaining about police shootings, that that must mean that you're anti-cop, that you hate cops, or that you aren't appreciative of cops, or whatever whatever line is It's fed. the classic black lives versus blue lives false dichotomy. Exactly. And look, let's make one thing absolutely clear. Black lives matter. And this is... this What I'm about to say is actually... Straight from the mouth of uh, one of their one of their uh, activists who uh, said this at a rally, who specifically explained that Black Lives Matter is not anti-cop; they're anti-bad cop, mm -hmm. as anybody should be. So don't fall for that false dichotomy. You can truly mourn the loss of any police officer who loses their life in the line of duty. You can celebrate the heroism of police officers who have saved people, who have protected people. You can do all of that while still believing that they need to be held to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. Those are not mutually exclusive. And anybody that tells you differently is committing a false dichotomy. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, black lives matter. Ahmad's life mattered whether it's police or everyday vigilantes we have a problem in the united states and unless we talk about it whether you're whether you're black or white or uh or latino or uh 
whatever ethnicity you might be. If we try to shift the conversation and say that this is just a black issue, so only so only they should talk about it, we shouldn't talk about it at all, that is not how we solve the problem. How we yeah, solve that is the problem. specifically trying to avoid the Exactly. Problem. Let's not forget what Martin Luther King said, what his strategy was. He was trying to make it impossible for white moderates to continue to be white moderates. Mm -hmm. You know, he said that one of the biggest one of the biggest problems is the white moderate, the person who maybe they're not overtly racist, maybe they don't hate black people, but they don't think that things need to change because maybe they have not been personally affected by it or they don't think it's their problem. So by making those images, by making sure that there is imagery of black activists being beaten by police officers to make sure that the images of black people being lynched by vigilantes, the reason why that was so important to the civil rights movement was because a white moderate can't really stay a white moderate and look at those pictures. At one point, you have to take a stand. Are you okay with it? Well, then you're on the side of the racists. Or are you not okay with it? Then you need to become an activist. So don't forget that. And we actually, we actually did a podcast in which uh, we talked about specifically the history of racism in the state of Virginia with our good friend uh, Larry Yates, um, in which he talked about his book. Uh, what, what, what date was that pod on, Michael? That was February 18th. So you're if you're interested in hearing that conversation, it was certainly really illuminating for me. Um, so yeah, definitely go back and listen. But we also want to recognize that, you know, we are two white guys with a podcast talking about racism in America. Um, and so, and the, the conversation about Black Lives Matter and, and Ahmad that we've had today doesn't even scratch the surface yeah. of the, you know, tremendous inequalities that are experienced every day. I mean, you know, even coronavirus affects the African-American community disproportionately. And so these are issues that, you know, we've been planning to put together a, um, a pod specifically talking about some of these issues in the future. Um, and I think we'll try to get, um, you know, voices with more authority on this topic than us yeah. uh, to participate in that conversation when it comes. But, you know, to Nathan's point, one thing I, a note I wanted to end on is that our voices and actions matter. You know, the, the, this case would not have made progress. It would not have gotten attention if Ahmad's mother had not pushed for justice in, you know, trying to get Barnhill to recuse himself from the case. Um, if a, uh, one of the attorneys involved hadn't leaked the video and if people didn't share this virally and make it a priority, it is, it seems pretty unlikely to me that it would have been fully pursued. And so even in this, even in this one case, our voices can matter. And when we take action and work on this issue together and make sure that it's not forgotten about, um, you know, together, we can make a difference and keep people alive.
Okay, and with that, um, we want to just end uh, with, uh, you know, our highlights, as we always do. So, Nathan, do you have a highlight from, from this week? Yeah. Uh, actually, just today, I turned in uh, my grades for my community college students. So, uh, that is all done. That is all taken care of. Uh, I, I have my... Uh, I have my university students as well that I have to um, finish by the end of this week, but I am almost, I'm almost there. Uh, and then summer starts and I get to, um, I get to start uh, another summer class, which, uh, which I'm really glad <laughs> I was able to get a summer class, but that's, that, that's going to keep me busy, but it's only going to be one. So it's not going to be like, it's not going to be too terribly uh, uh stressful um and no, so, so i'm looking forward to that uh what about you nice. michael what's your highlight well uh, my highlight is that this past weekend after intensely quarantining for a few weeks uh, my wife and i were finally able to meet our new niece um, so a few weeks ago i said on the pod that my highlight of the week was something that I couldn't tell anybody about, and that was the uh, weekend of her birth. And so, yeah, we got to meet her, and she is absolutely precious and adorable, um, and it was just an awesome experience getting to support her new parents and, um, you know, hold her and bond with her, and it was such a wonderful um, kind of rejuvenating experience in these yeah. weird and dark times. Yeah. And you know, she's going to grow up knowing that her uncle is a, uh, a host on one of the most mm. famous, famous podcasts in the world. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, that is the trajectory that we're on. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, thank you so much for tuning into the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.